Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. One of the officers in the medical ward was Douglas Bader, who was there after having had his legs amputated as a result of an accident some months before mine. We knew each other, having been in fighter command together. Later, when the hospital seemed satisfied that I was convalescent, they allowed Douglas Bader and me to go out together. He had just received his legs, tin ones, officers for the use of, and wanted someone to accompany him on a jaunt outside the camp. We visited a cafe called Pantowers, where subsequently he met his wife, but my recollection was Douglas's insistence on playing clock golf. It is hard to imagine a man with greater courage than Douglas Bader, for here he was, out on two tin legs for the first time, and immediately wanting to play a game. He did it, and to this day I can still see the sweat of pain and effort pouring down his face as, without any sure contact with the ground, he balanced himself and putted round the course. And he beat me into the bargain. Later, we both went to the movies. I remember so well sitting in the front row of the dress circle. Suddenly, Douglas put one leg up in the air like the mast of a ship to adjust the nut at the knee, which kept it stiff. After a while, the lady behind said rather irritably, Do you mind moving your leg, sir? I can't see properly. And so the time passed with headaches and insomnia and terrible depression. I finally saw a remarkable doctor who sat me down in his consulting room and said, Look here, you see this sheet of paper? Well, I'm going to divide it into two, and I shall shade one side. That shaded side is your subconscious mind. Now, I'm going to make a dot like this. And he made a dot in the shading. This, he continued, is something you do not like or want to think about. And the longer it is there, and the more it is sat on, the larger it grows, until it comes over into the clear half of your conscious mind, and all hell is let loose. He looked at me and said, Now, I suggest this dot is in you. In this crash. So for three days a week, I shall talk to you and you to me of nothing else but the crash. Question and answer. Do you see? And then suddenly you will be freed. We did. And I was. Looking back on those years, I feel that I was very fortunate to have had such a wonderful experience. I had the privilege of growing up with many splendid types who were to prove of immense worth in the coming years. Small as the Air Force then was, it was second to none and its standard was remarkable, both in aircraft and men, but few realised how little money was expended on it. At that time, Sir Philip Sassoon, an immensely rich man, was the Under Secretary of State for Air. It was said that the entire budget for the Air Force was equivalent to Sir Philip's fortune of 15 million. And how much we owed to this man, strange as he was. It was his foresight in encouraging the Royal Auxiliary Air Force that enabled it to fulfil its purpose in the Battle of Britain. Sir Philip entertained lavishly and owned three magnificent houses, one at Limpney, near Hythe, one in London, 25 Park Lane, and a beautiful house called Trent Park. I stayed at all these houses, and they were packed with treasures of all kinds. He only entertained officers, no ladies, and to refuse to accept his invitation was to incur his wrath. I am convinced now that in those weekends he was taking stock of the material of which the Air Force was made, 
In some way, I think he knew what was to come, the frightful challenge that was appearing on the other side of the channel, the building up and recovery of the German Air Force. In this conviction, I am left with a clear memory of two significant factors in the RAF story. The first was the realisation that by 1934, Germany not only had parity with the Royal Air Force, but it had already passed it in total number of aircraft, and that they had already begun to stockpile in large numbers all and every necessary spare part. This information had been in the hands of the government for some time, but had been held back for some inexplicable reason. It burst upon the British public like a bomb, exploded in fact by Mr Baldwin in the House of Commons. The second significant factor was the review of the Royal Air Force by George V in 1935. It is said that up to that time he had not shown much favour to the Royal Air Force, but one Sunday, as he was passing Bircham Newton, an RAF station on his way to Sandringham, Her Majesty Queen Mary persuaded him to go and look around. The station was caught by surprise, for nearly all the personnel were on weekend leave. Neither the guard commander nor the orderly officer would believe the equerry when he announced that the king was at the gate. However, they were persuaded that George V was there and hurriedly arranged for a conducted tour of the station. The aircraft on this station were pretty antiquated, and it is said that this visit inspired the king to demand a royal review of the air force, the first of its kind. I should think that must have made a horrid impact on the then rulers of this country. I took part in this royal flight, and the fact that the entire air force was able to fit on one airfield, Mildenhall, showed up our appalling weakness as an air power. Perhaps even more significant was the fact that the bombers who led the air force in the flypast had a top speed of 90 miles an hour. This was 1935. However, mercifully, the Air Force received a rejuvenating injection and was able to expand at a rapid rate. Shortly afterwards, I came to the end of my time in the Air Force. It was the training I received during this period and the high standard of flying on which the service insisted that later enabled me to assume command of the Glider Pilot Regiment. I was retired to the Reserve of Air Force Officers. The years passed. At the time of Munich, I was recalled, but with a difference. I was informed that I had been put in Category C, ground duties. Dreading this, I asked if I could be transferred to the army, as I felt I could be more active there than that of administrative officer on the ground, which to me was abhorrent. Thus I found myself transferred to the 5th Battalion of the Queen's Royal Regiment, the Royal West Surreys, and gazetted as a lieutenant to an infantry battalion, which was to be the third stage of the experiences which prepared me for what lay ahead. When I say third stage, this was in fact my third taste of service life, for I had been, before my service in the Royal Air Force, a naval cadet at the Nautical College Pangbourne. I mention this because it held a true significance for me. The Nautical College at Pangbourne had originally been founded by Divot and Moore, a shipping company, to boost the ever-increasing demand for officers in the Merchant Navy, also the Royal Navy. It had a full charter from the Admiralty of Royal Naval Reserve, and the cadets were patterned accordingly. I joined this college in 1925 and endured the full rigours of the naval cadet's life. I slept in a hammock in a dormitory with 35 other boys. I learnt how to lash up and stow my hammock in the most seamanlike manner. I paraded nine times a day and we lived in terms of 35 cadets. Commanded by a cadet captain, each house had a chief cadet captain and overall was the chief cadet captain of the college. It is true to say that in this environment I learned the essentials of man management and eventually I became Chief Cadet Captain of the College and King's Cadet. Thus I had behind me basic training in severe discipline from the age of 13 and had added to it the discipline of flying. 
Now I was called upon to satisfy the demands made on both platoon company and company commander in the British Army. The experience was to prove of prime importance. The Queen's Royal Regiment had great traditions. Founded in 1661, it was originally the bodyguard of the Queen to Charles II and had a long tradition of fame and service all over the world. It had a distinctive background in that it was one of the last regiments of the line to serve in ships, to be superseded by the Royal Marines, and it still shows the naval crown in its badge. This was to suggest something to me later, as will be seen. It is said that one of the finest commands in the world is that of the platoon commander, for he is responsible for human beings, and each of the men is in some way his personal property. If the young officer obtains the confidence and respect of his platoon, he becomes in effect their father, and if he is to get the best out of them, he must seek out everything that will encourage that respect and thus produce the perfect fighting machine. Discipline and military training are not enough, not wholly anyway. It is imperative to know the men backwards, their temperaments, their loves and hates, their family life and their misfortunes and inspirations. I learnt this thoroughly, and I was not to regret it. In those early days at the end of the peace and the beginning of the conflict of 1939, our military knowledge and training were antiquated, being based on the First World War. Equipment was sparse, and what there was of it was sorely needed by the regular battalions, who must be the first in the line of battle. Mine was a territorial battalion, manned by enthusiasts of every walk in life, and we quickly learned by our mistakes. Sometime before the outbreak of war, my company was concentrated in the Farncombe Drill Hall, and we all thought that the Germans were on the move and might be in the Isle of Wight at any moment. But that excitement died down as the days drew on towards a formal and polite declaration of war. At once, we expected massive air attack, and gas at that. The entire 5th Battalion was housed in a country mansion at Nutfield, owned by a wealthy man who had never reckoned on 600 men living in his house. I slept in a room with 15 officers, and each room from top to bottom had an average of 30 men in it. The damage was formidable, but hardly surprising, for no door in a house is designed to be opened and shut at least 10 times a minute, or the stairs to suffer 1,200 hobnail boots endlessly tramping up and down them. Later, we moved to Sherborne School, where we were dispersed among the houses, and we remained there training for some time. It was from here that I made my first abortive visit to France as a member of the British Expeditionary Force. Without warning, I found myself posted overseas and I arrived at Cherbourg on a very, very cold morning in 1939. On arrival, I was informed that I'd been attached to the 3rd Battalion, the Grenadier Guards, on the Belgian frontier. The winter was intensely cold and when I arrived at the headquarters of the battalion in a small chateau, I felt that I was back in 1918. The atmosphere was incredibly the same. The battalion was one of a guards brigade, not far from Lille, and it was dispersed around some new fortifications facing Belgium. These represented an utter waste of time, for they were to be overrun in a matter of hours when the Germans advanced into Belgium and France in 1940. It was significant that the battlefields of 1914-18 to were all around us and the old scars could still be seen. The walls of the cottage in which I was billeted still bore the marks of the old Prussian guard. These circumstances influenced the attitude of northern Frenchmen to the whole aspect of the later conflict, which the following incident illustrates. The headquarters of the Grenadiers was in a small chateau, as I've said, and the owner had been squeezed into one of the wings. One Sunday morning, the commanding officer invited the Frenchman in for a glass of sherry before lunch. The man, I remember, he had a greying beard, had a bitter, hard, a despairing expression. I must say that the colonel was not gifted with tact, and his remarks made me blush with shame. Well, monsieur, he said, 
I see from the markings on the wall of your chateau that you had the old Prussian guard here, and now you have the British Grenadier guards. How do you like it? The Frenchman raised the glass to his lips, answered, Monsieur Colonel, I see no difference, and walked out. He certainly left an indelible impression on me, if not on the Colonel. This was during the phony war of 1939, and phony it was. It was difficult to believe that there really was a war on, and that it was not a vast training exercise. Once there was a false alarm and we began to enter Belgium, only to beat a hasty retreat when we learned it was a mistake in the signal and that we were in grave danger of infringing Belgian neutrality. If ever there was a farce, it was this phony war. I returned to England after a few weeks, but shortly was back again in France with my own battalion, this time second in command of a company which gave me considerable experience in the feeding of soldiers and the general background of man management and administration. When we landed at Cherbourg, we were immediately informed that we were to take part in a march of 150 miles in four days, apparently with the object of trying to draw the Germans into Belgium. I had never marched more than about 20 miles in my life, so I found it quite an experience, both marching 40 miles a day in full battle order and in keeping up the morale of the men, few of whom had ever marched any distance at all. One of the rules in the Queen's Royal Regiment was that the men came before everything, on major route marches, at the end of each day, no officer was permitted to unbuckle a button on his equipment or to read or to lie down or to sit until all his men had been fed, their feet inspected and they had been bedded down for the night. I was to make use of this rule later when I had the task of forming a regiment. I had hardly been with my battalion more than a week when, once again, I was sent back to England, this time to attend a course at the RAF, Old Serum, with the object of becoming an air liaison officer because of my Air Force background. The appointment, however, fell through, and instead I was posted to the depot of the Queen's at Guildford, where I learned the importance and impotence of depot life. The situation was unusual in that the depot was completely unarmed and had to borrow rifles from the armoury of the Charterhouse School OTC. But at least I learned the immense value of esprit de corps, for the CO was a martinet and did wonderful work in maintaining all the major traditions of the depot. I was eventually posted to the 2nd 7th Battalion, the Queen's Royal Regiment, at Faversham in Kent. This was a typical Cockney battalion, most of the men having been recruited from the East End of London. The battalion was completely unequipped at this time, which was 1940, and when the men stood to at night to resist invasion, it was necessary to borrow rifles from the Home Guard in order to man the posts fully. After stand down at dawn, the rifles were handed back to the Home Guard. Later we were posted to the beaches, and here our arms were even more ludicrous. It was a blessed miracle that the Germans did not know the deplorable state of the British Army, for they would have had little difficulty in coming ashore. In my company... I had two guns, six-pounder calibre, mounted on Austin 10 chassis. The guns had come from the tanks of the war of 1914-18. to 18. My rightful platoon was in the Dimchurch Redoubt, well known to holidaymakers. I also had another platoon farther down the beaches. One day I was informed that a gun would be placed in the redoubt, and along the road came a building contractor's lorry carrying the gun. It was a huge naval gun, which had been dug up from the grave in which it had been interred after the disarmament convention of 1922. It fired solid shell as well as solid shot, and we mounted it, as ordered, on the Dimchurch Redoubt. As I visited the posts at night, walking in between the minefields, I often looked out to sea and thought to myself, just how long can we last? Was it all a farce or a fearful dream? We were not ready to meet a full-scale attack because of our defeat and loss of arms at Dunkirk and because of the neglect of our forces between the wars. 
Luckily, the invasion never came, and we were spared the humiliation we might have experienced, thanks to the men of the Battle of Britain, who dissuaded the Germans from attacking us. A few months later, my battalion was moved to the eastern counties before going overseas, and it was now that fate really took a hand. I was, at this time, not very happy in the battalion, and was frustrated and bored with infantry life. One evening, bending down to the waste paper basket for a piece of paper to light my pipe, and finding a piece, I opened it. My eye happened to catch an advertisement which read, Volunteers for the role of glider pilot. I read further, and with deepening interest, and found that I was eligible to volunteer as a pilot, and possibly to become second in command of the new battalion of the glider pilot regiment. I immediately rang up the adjutant and asked if it was too late to volunteer. The answer was, today is the last day. You can just get your application in. That action was to change completely the whole of my life in the army. Here I was, a fully-fledged pilot with considerable experience of soldiering in the practical sense and in the field. And here was something new to be formed and developed into a really worthwhile command, which required just this combination of qualities. I was on the threshold of a new career, and I could feel it in my very bones. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration.
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.